Hello everyone, this is Yuande, founder of Zora Digital, and welcome to the 26th episode of the Z Talks podcast. On today's episode, we learn more about Tierra Encantada. Tierra Encantada is a unique bilingual educational program with 11 and growing franchise and corporate locations around the U.S. I had a chat with Kristen Denser, the founder of this fast-growing company, and we spoke about what it took to get her first center open, how she got the financing, and her keys to success. Let's get started. Hi, Christian. Thanks so much for joining us on the Z Talk podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's start out by learning a little bit more about your business. Can you tell us a little bit about your business? Sure. Uh, so Tierra and Catada is the leader in Spanish immersion early education. So daycare and preschool, six weeks through six years of age. And we provide education and care for children. Uh, some of our kind of unique things are we have a organic, fresh cooked meal program. Every center has culinary staff that make everything from scratch each day. And so there's a lot of different value adds for families. Wow, that sounds amazing. So how did you get the idea to start this company? I actually owned several businesses before I started this one, and I already had that kind of entrepreneurial experience and had kids and had them join, get childcare because I needed childcare. I was a business owner. And during that process, touring centers, seeing what's out there, I realized that one, this was an area that there was a lot of room for growth in uh, business-wise, but also there was a, a, some gaps in the market in childcare in terms of the quality of the experience for families, but also for staff, and wanted to create something that I didn't see that existed in our area at the time. So what makes Tierra Encantada different? So there, there are a lot of things that Tierra is different from childcare centers. So, you know, childcare is not a pioneering industry in general. I mean, childcare as a whole has been around for a very long time, and there's many options for families today. You know, we are certainly not the first language immersion or Spanish immersion center, but all of the elements that we've taken into our program to create what Tierra and Katata is, I think is what really separates us and has separated us for a very long time. So it isn't just Spanish immersion. So our curriculum is set through the vehicle of Spanish language, uh, but it is our curriculum itself, which is our own proprietary curriculum that we created because we saw a lot of gaps with early childhood education and, you know, a real lack of, diversity. I mean, so for example, uh, you look at a lot of early childhood education curriculum that exists, you will, you will not see, you know, coloring sheets that have two moms or two dads with the family. I mean, there's just, it's very behind, very outdated. And we think it's very important for children to see themselves in their environment. And so that's something that is definitely really unique and separates us. Uh, also with our meal program, the organic fresh cooked meals, I mean, we serve things like shrimp jollof rice or couscous with tofu, things you just do not see in childcare. And then I think one of the biggest differentiators, which was something that I 
did not see. I mean, where, where my kids are going at the time, they were paying their staff minimum wage. There's no benefits. I mean, childcare as a whole has been treated in a sense almost like fast food workers in terms of how the pay and compensation is looked at. But these are, you know, the people that are taking care of your children. They're spending, you know, as much time as you with them sometimes. And so it was really important to me when I started Sierra that uh, I took a I really prioritize, I mean, employee compensation and employee experience. And so, you know, medical insurance, dental insurance, 401k with match, paid parental leave, moms and dads. I mean, these are benefits that less than 10% of early childhood education programs in the country offer. And it's been something that's been very important to us and that we offer our staff. Oh, so I'm sure your staff is super happy about that and you're able to retain your staff. Yes. So um, has that had an impact on the retention? Yes, it definitely it definitely helps, and it's definitely helpful in terms of recruitment too, because we'll hire staff where you know some of our competitors they have to pay for their own training, for example, but we pay for the staff training. Not only do we pay for their training, we'll pay for their child development associate credential, which is a national credential that once they get, they get a very significant raise to be a lead teacher that we then give them as well. And so there's just things that I think really help us with recruitment and retention because we do them and not many people do. Yeah. It also seems like it would be difficult for a startup to pay competitive wages. So how were you able to do that right out the gate? Our, what we offer family is, is maybe a bit more of like a premium experience. And so, but our rates, to be honest, if you look at our rates and compare it with market, they are right at market in some cases lower than I think national competitors. So people are surprised about that. But I mean, I think the mindset I've always had is I don't need to squeeze every penny out of my business. Like I want to feel good about what I'm doing. I want to feel good about, you know, how I'm treating my employees and I'm okay making a little less so that other people that are working for me and helping me achieve this can make more. Yeah, that's smart because it's always difficult to train and then have to retrain. So you actually probably are saving more money in the end. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about the language immersion part of the program. How have your customers responded to that? They love it. I mean, most of our family is do not, most of our parents do not speak a second language. Uh, it most commonly is like a, a mom or a dad. Maybe they took Spanish in high school a few years, kind of forgot it. They might know a few words and they really hate that. They really regret that. They wish they had learned another language. That's the vast majority of our family is. They know how important it is to be bilingual, trilingual. You know, they wish they could be, and they really want that for their kids. They want more for their kids. And so they just, I mean, they love it. I mean, our Minneapolis centers, even during the pandemic, we had, you know, hundreds of families on our wait list. I mean, we have a lot of families that wanting to enroll and we keep our families from when they enroll as an infant all the way to the, when they go to kindergarten. And so I think it's something that is really needed and the U.S. is pretty behind in language learning. And so we're hoping to see more of that. I know I'm here in Minnesota, we see, uh, we've seen an increase in elementary, like public schools adding, you know, Spanish immersion. We've had a couple of schools open up for that that are public. And so that's nice because then they have an option once they leave us to go on to kindergarten and continue that Spanish immersion. Wow. I definitely didn't have this uh, language in my elementary school. <laughs> school. So that's amazing. I, I guess it's the it's what it's starting to be the, the norm in terms of we are just a really diverse 
um, environment and community. So we need to have those, that language, those language skills. But why is it important for kids um, this age to learn language at this age? The, the younger you learn a language, the better your ability to not only learn it, but have the natural pronunciation. You know, there's, there's a lot of research in linguistics and specifically pertaining to the ability to vocalize some of the different requirements of languages, like, for example, Chinese. And what they have found is, you know, that first year is really critical for those abilities. And then once you hit about 12 years old, your ability to learn and retain a language just goes down tremendously. And so when you're youngest, when you're, you know, the age that we serve, that is really the best time to learn another language. And we see it because how kids are learning it is naturally, just like kids learn at home. I mean, when you think about when you have kids, you aren't sitting down with your one-year-old and teaching them English. You're just talking to them. You're just going through your day talking to them, and they learn. That's how the kids in our program learn. We have our curriculum, and it's taught to them. But all of that teaching, all of the communications is in Spanish. And so they are learning just like they do at home. And so we see it when parents come into our program. They'll come in, you know, on a tour. And they'll see, you know, uh, a four-year-old, you know, turn to their mom, speak in Spanish, or speak in English, turn to their teacher, speak in Spanish. Spanish, and they can just switch naturally between the two languages because they're thinking in it, because they've grown through that from a young age, and so they're able to do that. Whereas us, because we learn later, we it's a lot harder for us to do that. We have to think, we have to process that translation in our head before we say it. What do I want to say? I want to say this. How do I say it in Spanish? All in your mind, and that adds time versus just thinking in that language, which is what happens when you learn very young. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was trying to think back to when did I first start taking Spanish, and I feel like it was in high school. But to your point, to this day, I still have to think about what I want to say in English and then translate it in my head and then speak it out. So unfortunately, I didn't get that 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 learning where I was immersed into it from an early age. So that's that's so, so smart. And those kids are so fortunate <laughs> to have that experience. Yes. Yes. So where where is where is Tierra Encantada? Um, where are they located? Where are your locations? So most of our centers right now are located in Minnesota. Uh, we have uh, in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, we have uh, six, and then we have a franchise location as well, so seven. We have a location in Rochester, eight. Uh, we also have a location opening in Virginia and Illinois next month. And then we have franchisees in Alabama, several in Texas, North Carolina, uh, just kind of spread throughout the country, and we're looking at opening nationally as well. Wow. So I was thinking about your business before the podcast and I was like, it's such a scalable business. Uh, and you started, did you start the franchise model right away? And when did you start that? No. So that I started, you know, I had really good timing with this. I actually started that right before the, right before the pandemic, but I, I never intended to franchise when I started, when I started Tierra, I, um, I, you know, I, I obviously had the thought in my mind, I could grow up more. I don't think I really realized the extent I could and would grow it, though. And I did not plan to do that. You know, I wanted to grow through corporate growth, through our growth, naturally, because I was, you know, concerned about brand dilution. You know, I was concerned that uh, somebody would choose not to have some of the books that we have that, say, show, you know, 
two moms married, you know, like I, I was concerned that there'd be some of those issues and talking to uh, the contract legal team that I've used for a while, you know, they are very involved with franchising, franchise or franchisees. And so they were able to kind of help me understand the, the, protections you put in place with your SOPs and your brand standards to make sure that what we offer is offered whether or not it is franchise or corporate location. And so that really helps, you know, reassure me and understand that, yes, this is because that was really my only hesitation. Uh, You know, I love the idea of working with other entrepreneurial people to bring Tier and Katata to their area. Uh, I like helping business owners in general. I'm on a, a board that does like micro lending to business owners, mainly women business owners. And so I just, I love the franchise model where we're partnering with somebody that knows their area well and wants to bring Tierra to their area and just help them build their own wealth and success. And so I, I think it's great. I really enjoy it. So what advice would you have for someone that is looking to franchise their business? Let's see. Um, I would say, so what what we really look for when we are considering granting somebody a franchise is a few things. First, looking at, you know, is this individual somebody that is like a self-starter, resourceful? I mean, being entrepreneurial definitely helps. I mean, we do have, we do have investors as well, but when really like the most work happens while you're getting ready to open because you're looking for sites, you're getting financing, you're, you know, working with contractors, uh, working with us on making sure the plans are, you know, on point with licensing requirements in the States, you know, ordering all the stuff, hiring. Once you're open, you know, then it becomes a lot easier because our model is set up where it does not require the franchisee at all. You know, I've never, it's never been set up where I personally have like, had to work at a center. You know, we have a director, we have an assistant director, you know, our staffing model is set up so we have like floats because we have all this, you know, PTO and vacation. So we need to make sure we have good coverage all the time. And so having that entrepreneurial, resourceful kind of can-do attitude is very helpful, especially in that initial days, because you need to be able to be flexible and kind of figure things out, work through processes, because we give people... I mean, we give a lot, like everything. I mean, everything from everything you need to buy for your center. We do the the test fits. So like how to lay out your rooms. We do the furniture layouts, like where to put furniture in your rooms, you know, your supply list, all of your SOPs, all of your training, all of your curriculum. We give you everything. And so once you have that, it's 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 pretty easy. But where you where the franchisee needs to do work is they have to get their childcare license. And so we have all the policies, but they have to actually get the license because it's their license. And so uh, having people that, you know, kind of our can-do go-getters really helps because sometimes some some jurisdictions, like, for example, Chicago can have very long processes with multiple government entities. And if you don't kind of be very resourceful and patient and and figure things out, then it can have some real obstacles or barriers to that. And so I think that having some of those attributes is very helpful. Um, but And then also understanding that when you're franchising a concept, you're picking it because you're picking something that works, that's already proven that it works. And so uh, understanding that and knowing that the expectations are that you're following the model. So you can't choose to, you know, 
buy this playground. You have to buy what is our brand standard. You know, we've we've tested many different things over the years and what we have learned is what really works. And so you have to follow that. And so that, that sometimes too uh, is a good thing to understand because it, it, sometimes people might be like, oh, I want to start this. I want to start a Tira and I want the walls to be green. But they can't. It has to follow the standard. And so uh, some of those things I think are helpful when looking at a franchise. So wait, how long from when you started the business to, did you start franchising? Uh, so I started Tira in 2013 and I started franchising uh, in mid to late 2019. Okay, so it was about two years, uh, two and a half or so. So 13 to 19 to so six years. Oh, okay. But I have <laughs> been franchising yeah, for about that long. long. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so from you started in, when did you start? 2013. 2013, and you started franchising in 2019. Okay, yeah, about six years. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that you never have worked in an actual, um, one of your actual centers. So did you start right away with hiring in your first center? You never worked in the business? Yeah. So I've never, I've never had a position for myself in the business. I think when you are just starting, it's important to be present, but I have always had, like from day one, had a director. Uh, I never served in the capacity of the director, assistant director float, and I didn't have to be there, you know, but I think that because I planned over more, I think it was important for me to understand how things, you know, understand the flow of the day, the cadence. Uh, Even now, like when we're testing something and going and understanding like it does this really work? Is this working like we think it does? Does this, you know, all fit on the shelf that we want these toys on? You know, all those little things I think are important to be present. But our model for our for our centers does not has never had me working in it. And for franchisees, I mean, we have we have a couple of franchisees where their dream has always been to open a childcare center, so they want to be that director. And then they'll be more, you know, they'll have more cash flow than I do at my centers because you know, they won't, their director pay would be just going to them. We have a lot, most of our franchisees do not plan that. You know, we have some that are just investors. I mean, pure investors, they have many things they invest in. And so they're not, they're not ever intending to be there. They're hiring, you know, directors, leaders in childcare to do that. And so that's what it's really set up for is that, but we have a couple that want to do that. And so they are doing that because they want to. So talk to me about your journey. How did you get here? I grew up in a family that was very, like maybe driven is a good word. My grandpa, he owned businesses. Uh, He was on the city council. He was mayor. I mean, and I remember as a kid, like five, six years old, you know, riding in the back of his pickup truck, putting out yard signs for his campaigns, you know, sitting at his gas station, emptying the vending machines. And because both my parents were working and, you know, involved in, in corporate life, uh, when I was, say, sick, I'd be at my grandparents because they were entrepreneurs. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, the schedule isn't the same as when you work a job. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And so I got to see that. And I think that was always something that was, you know, kind of at the back of my mind of, okay, I, you know, that's, this is what this meant. Like when you when you are an entrepreneur like my grandfather, you can be around more, you know, you can 
take care of your grandkids when they're sick. You can you can do some of these things that were really special to me and that I really liked. Uh, and then when I got my first job, when I got my first job right out of college, uh, I was working and in, in like fundraising and communications. And I had a couple things that were kind of not the best experience. Um, I, when I interviewed, I, I had my nose piercing. I have a really tiny nose piercing. I've never, all I've worn is this little nose set for forever. I've never had anything different. And I wore it when I got the interview. And when I started the job, my supervisor was kind of like, mm, you should, you should take that out. You know, it's not very professional, like when you're meeting with donors and stuff. And I did for like a week. And then I was like, you know what? I like how I look at this. This is how I interviewed. This is who I am. Like, I want this. And so I put it back in. And then after that, I, um, I, I got a lot of experience working on writing for grants and things. And I remember I had worked really hard on a grant and I actually was successful. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, I've never done this. I felt pretty good. But then my supervisor took credit for it uh, to their supervisor. And it was just like, demoralizing and it was just like man like I worked really hard I mean yeah it was it really it really bothered me and it kind of stuck with me and I think something that I that's kind of driven me towards entrepreneurship is you reap what you sow so if I work really hard and I do I mean right now I'll be honest I work probably 80 90 hours a week but if I work really hard I will be able to experience like what comes of that because I am working hard for myself to further this company for not just me, but for, you know, everybody here. I mean, I, many people on my team care very much about this company and work very hard to achieve our goals. And that's something that's really stuck with me and why anytime, you know, I talk and like a magazine article or things like that, I think it's really important to acknowledge my team because I mean, there's no way I'd be here right now if it wasn't for the people that I have, you know, I mean, they're the difference between a lot of these things. And so I just, I think those things led me to think more about entrepreneurship. And then the other businesses, you know, it was kind of just doing them and learning what I enjoyed. And, you know, I had an event rental company. It was a lot of nights and weekends. It was very stressful. You know, when I, the last fall I did events, we had 22, events in a weekend and then I had like six seven staff call in and then I spent the whole weekend all day and night setting up weddings and my kids were really young and it was just it was not it was awful uh and then with the dog daycare I had you know it was the same thing there was a lot of nights and weekends and you know it just it wasn't something that I felt as passionate about and so when I started Tierra I was able to really make it everything that I wanted in the full circle with like my my own kids went there so it was like what do I want for my kids like I I want this for my employees like what do I want this to look like and really create it and then it, it's something that I'm passionate about and so that's where I sold off and got, got rid of all the other businesses and just really focused on this. Wow. So you, you definitely had a, a journey and they were all learning experiences. And what I was hearing when you were talking is that it seemed like the other businesses you were working more, more in the business, whereas on this for this business, you're working more on the business. Is that a difference that you're seeing in these in the various businesses that you've had? Yeah, I would say for sure that is correct, because 
I mean, so the dog daycare, no, the dog daycare, I never, I didn't work at the dog daycare. Um, you know, it was more similar to what I'm doing here with this, but the event business, absolutely. I mean, the event business was definitely like that. And I mean, yeah, it was definitely more like that. And so I think that is definitely a piece of it, but I think it's also the work that I'm doing. I mean, hearing people like, like we have a family, we have a family that posted this, this Yelp review that I just love. And they talk about how their child translated for them when they went to Central America. And it's just like their child translated because they were at our program and just hearing things like that and knowing like the difference you're making, it just, it, it, it really is something else. Like it, it really feels special versus some of the other things I've done. And so just being such a huge part of people's lives and helping families and helping parents, I think too, like relieve some of that guilt of going to work, you know? I mean, I think a lot of parents feel a lot of guilt for working, you know, and not being the the Pinterest mom with, you know, 18,000 crafts every week and, you know, gourmet five course meals for their kids. And so hopefully when their kids go to us, they feel a little less guilty getting pizza on the way home because their child had like mushroom spinach quiche for breakfast and, you know, quinoa with avocado for lunch, you know, they feel a little less guilty. And so it's just, I think the whole part of the impact that we're having on people's lives is something that I feel good about what I'm doing, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. Man, I would feel good about it too. If I had some of those meals for lunch, definitely. Uh, and yeah, I think it's always a wonderful experience when you're working on something that you feel good about and that's giving back to the community. And you also mentioned that you're part of a board that gives micro lending to women. That's so important and needed at this time. But I was wondering, how did you get your first investment to start your company? I, I didn't. I mean, so the all the businesses I started before Tierra, I didn't get financing or anything for. I mean, it was each one got bigger and bigger. So the event rental business that I only had to put in, you know, a thousand or two because we'd buy samples of what we were going to rent. And then we would buy them as the event came up. And so for that, it was such a low cost investment, just a thousand or two. Uh, With the dog daycare, that was a lot more, you know, that was I want to say that was more like 30 or 40,000 and that was, and I had a business partner. So that was both of us saving and credit cards. I mean, honestly that and credit cards and a lot of sweat equity. I mean, we were doing so much of the work for that. So much construction work, like as much as we could do, we were doing. And then for Tierra, Tierra was the first time I got like a financing and I got a loan, I got an SBA loan. And so I, um, I had to though, because it was, you know, much higher investment when I did the very first one. And for that, I, I mean, I approached a few different banks, you know, to try to get somebody to give me money to do this. And fortunately somebody, somebody trusted me too. And, and so I was able to open it through that, but, I mean, I, I learned a lot because I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I only asked for $20,000 of working capital when I started, which <laughs> was a mistake. I went through that in the first month. I mean, because I had full-time staff with benefits, you know. I mean, I went through that in the first month. And it was very stressful first year because 
once when you don't do well right away, no no bank's gonna give you more money. Like you know, you can go around and be like, oh, you know what? I under or, you know I was wrong on my projections. Can I have another hundred grand for just to weather this year? Nope, nope. And so I mean. Honestly, if I didn't have my other companies, I don't know if I would have made it. I mean, I would have had to like declare bankruptcy because I poured every dollar, like every dollar, I, every dollar I had into Tira that I was making from the other businesses just to make it and open up multiple credit cards. I mean, like it was a very stressful first year, but I had the mindset, which I think is important, that this is going to be successful because it has to be. Like, there is failure is not an option. It sounds cliche, but it, that is really what I was feeling. Like, I am going to make sure this is a success and I'm going to do whatever I need to. And so then finally, after a year, we got to my where, okay, making money will pay off the credit cards. And then it was okay. But I learned a lot that first year, that's for sure. <laughs> and so, my question for you, though, is, is that you know, you can make that investment, you can take that risk. And it sounds like you're not too risk averse. Um, but th there are some entrepreneurs out there that don't want to get into debt, and they don't want to take that risk. Like, how did you weigh the benefit and the risk? So, you know, everybody has different mindsets on debt. You know, I would say I tend to be more conservative in general. I mean, my projections are cons always conservative. I like to pay off loans. Like, I mean, my Egan Center, I paid off the loan. I don't have a loan on that at all, just because I don't like debt. But you really can't do a lot of big things without it. I mean, unless you're okay growing at a very, very slow rate. Because, you know, if we look at the second location I opened, um, if I didn't take debt, I would have had to lease and I wouldn't have been able to have that spot, but I was okay with that. So I bought the building and my rent. So I bought it with a real estate company that I created and rented it to my daycare. And the rent that I'm paying is less than if I would have leased it from anybody else, you know? And so, and then I own the building. So I'm basically paying myself to pay off the mortgage and then, you know, 20 years, then I'll own it. And so I think that, you know, debt, debt isn't, bad. I think that allows you to achieve a lot more faster, but it's all about people's risk tolerance. I mean, for me personally, I am not a person that is like, I, I have to have my oceanfront home. You know, I don't, I don't live on, you know, a lake or anything like that. Like I, I, I've had the same home for a very long time. You know, I don't, I don't need all of those things. And so if something, if it failed, I'm okay. Like, you know, I, I guess some people get, I think get so caught up in a, like a lifestyle that it's very high stakes then, and they just can't go back. But for me, it's just, if something doesn't work, I would be more concerned about like the people I employ and their, you know, their ability to like pay their rent and mortgage than myself, because I'm okay living in an apartment with my kids, you know, if something happens, like I'm okay. And so I think that helps, but everybody has to decide their own risk tolerance when it comes to that. I do not think it's possible to get to some places that people want to go without some form of financing. And I think that financing is the best way to go because the other option is giving up equity. I mean, you're, that's what most people are looking at. They're looking at debt or giving up equity. I mean, and I would much rather keep 100% 
and have loans than not because, I mean, I can pay them off early. But I mean, I think that's where you have to be really smart about running projections and what you're doing, you know, making sure you understand it fully so that you're making smart, risky moves. <laughs> so you're a very savvy entrepreneur. Do you think it's from your upbringing? How did you get all of this knowledge that you're using for your businesses? No, not at all, actually. Um, my parents aren't entrepreneurs. They both work work you know, at corporate jobs. My grandpa, you know, to be honest, I didn't actually get to talk to him too much about how he started his business because I think when you're younger, you don't even think of things like that. Like, you know, you don't understand, like, I think sometimes as a kid, you don't even understand the concept of business ownership, what that means or what that looks like. Um, and so a lot of it goes to, I think, which is one of the, I know I've already said this on this, but like one of the most important things I think when I'm looking at not just franchisees, but hiring people is resourcefulness because all the things that I know now I have had to learn and I have had to figure it out myself. I mean, when I opened the first daycare, I didn't hire a, a daycare consultant. You know, I figured it out. I mean, I had never gotten a kitchen license. I had never got a daycare license. You know, I, I didn't know any of that. I figured it out. I mean, I, I read the statutes. I read everything I could find. If I had a question, I called them. If I didn't understand something, I called them. I wanted to understand everything that I was doing so that I understood why. I didn't want to be like, oh, I have to do this. I want to know why I have to do this so that I could really understand it. And I think that has been extremely helpful. And I think I've stepped in a lot of roles too, which helps. I mean, so uh, for some of our locations, I was the general contractor, which I had never done. I mean, I've never taken any education in, in that. And I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing and I had to teach myself. And I asked a lot of questions. And I mean, I remember we had to add structural support and I didn't even think about the fact that we might need that. And that was a lot of cost added without knowing. And, and so there's a lot of things like that that have happened where uh, I've had to teach myself or I've had an inspector come through and be like, oh, you need this. And then I'll ask, okay, where is that in code or licensing or statute? Because I want to read what it says. Because sometimes it doesn't actually say that. Sometimes it does. But then I understand why. And then I remember it for next time so that I don't make that mistake again. And so I, most of it, I think, is just learning because I have, I mean, we didn't have a corporate staff until a couple of years ago. And so from 2013 until 2019, I was the marketing, finance, um, HR. I mean, I was all of those hats. And I am, uh, I don't want to say like I'm a perfectionist, but I have a very strong attention to detail and, and I care about quality. And so I don't want to just put together, say, a policy on travel expenses. I will read 30 travel expense policies. I will look up what people are doing before I put together mine because I want to make sure that I've thought through all of the variables so that when I'm doing it, I feel like, yes, I have thought about everything. This makes sense. I understand, you know, both sides of things and this is what I want to do. And so I think that's a big part of it. So you must be incredibly organized. What is your organization uh, process? Because you're a mom. It sounds like you had a couple other businesses when you started Tira Encantada. So how did you get all of this accomplished? I'm, I'm just amazed. Uh, I mean, you know, it's funny. If, if, if my staff listens, they'll laugh because my office is, is usually messy. I know where everything is, but it is a little messy. You know, I think I think... I use a lot of, I use a lot of reminders. Um, you know, when people tell me something, I'll be like, can you email that to me? Because I'll have so many things that 
I'm trying to retain, it gets very hard. It's very hard to retain everything. You know, I uh, we switched to using Google Suite for Business and its integrations with some of the tools that it has, like Google Keep and Doc, like just all of it, I think has been super helpful for like our team, for me, for, you know, making sure that things are done at the right time, that, you know, it's very interactive, that as things come up, we're all on the same page fast. You know, I mean, I wish I could say that I have some amazing secret to organization, but I don't even know if I would say like I'm the most organized person. Uh, I think that. I, I try, I mean, like for, I have little things that I do that help me, like for my inbox, I won't file, everything has to be, I am like a zero inbox person, but it won't be filed away unless it's done. And so if I haven't responded to the person or I haven't done what comes of that, I will not file it away because I don't want to forget (laughs) out of sight, out of mind, you know? And so, I mean, I think there's little things like that I've done, but I'm still, I'm still learning. I mean, I think I still definitely don't have great work-life balance and and miss things and forget things. And so I think it's just a process and you just try things until you figure out stuff that works. Oh, I commend you. And so I also wanted to take a step back and ask about, you snuck that in, you said you bought a building, you started a real estate company, and then you rented to yourself. Mm -hmm. What are are the benefits to that? Why did you decide to do that process? Well, uh, real estate is in general a good investment, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, if you if if you take what the cost of a mortgage is on a building and compare it with what you'll pay for rent, you will almost always find that you'll save money. Now, there's a barrier though to doing that. You need to have the capital to buy a building. Uh, if you go with SBA you and the 504 program specifically, you know, the down payment is 10%, which is a lot more attainable. Now, buildings, though, can be expensive. And so, I mean, I think when deciding to do it, for me, it was definitely looking at, okay, I I could see that it was a good investment in general, because I, I would pay less than I would for rent. And then I would own the building free and clear down the road at some point. And then that would just be money that I could use to buy more real estate. Um, and so I think I just, that's been something that I've, I've always been interested in. I've started doing a little less of it just mainly because I'm focusing most of my investing on Tira. Cause when you're looking at investing in real estate, you have to, and you're doing other things, you have to really weigh the costs of that equity loss. So, you know, if you have, say, and you're debating, should I buy this building or should I say open a tier in Katata Center? Well, $100,000, you could buy, you know, a a million dollar building, say, uh, you're probably not, I mean, unless you charge yourself a lot of rent, you're, you might make some money, whatever the difference in what you would have paid in rent, you know, so maybe 5,000, maybe 10,000 a month you're saving. So that'll be, you know, your profit. Whereas if you look at, okay, well, if I did this to open another Tierra, you know, and you look at, for example, like our FDD, I mean, the average profits, 400,000 a month or 400,000 a year. I mean, and so in one year, you'll make what I would in real estate over 10, you know, much longer period. And so that capital is much better use opening centers versus real estate. Uh, so, and that's true 
if there's a choice, like if I am choosing, which I am, it's not like I have, you know, unlimited resources. And so that's why I'm focusing more on Tierra. So when people, which most people have limited resources, that's what they need to consider. Like real estate is good, but at what cost, like, are you going to be able to do less of something else, you know, one less restaurant, one less this. And if the answer is yes, then you have to look at, okay, well, what would I make off a restaurant and what would I save on rent and real estate or make off real estate? And then that will tell you what the best approach is for you. But those are the things that you just have to kind of think about when you're, when you're looking at that. Wow. Thanks for that. I'm sure a lot of people listening got some good intel info and helps with their decision-making process. But I also wanted to ask you, why did you rent to yourself? So it's always smart in real estate to have a separate LLC own like your real estate. Uh, and I mean, that's what when I, I asked her guidance from like the CPA for my use and the legal to my use in terms of when I first did that. And that's what they recommended. That's what pretty much I've all real estate investors do. You have a separate entity that owns the real estate, usually an LLC that owns the real estate. And then whatever business it is, whether it's here, because I might at some point want to move that center. I might want to make it bigger. I might want to, you know, do something else. And then it's separate. If it's together, it's a lot harder to do that then. You know, if it's separate with a market lease, you know, then if I say want to open, buy the land across the street and build a little bit bigger center, I could then rent that building to somebody else, separate entity. It just, it's cleaner and it is what has been recommended to me by, by experts. Well, I'm glad you listened to the experts. And now that you say it, it makes sense also because it protects you legally in case one of the business, like if your business for, for God forbid failed, you wouldn't have it. It wouldn't have an impact on your real estate company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you were throwing out SBA. I got an SBA loan. To me, that sounds like a super hard thing to get. Was it hard for you to get an SBA loan to get um, approved for one for the amount that you needed? It sounds like you started at twenty thousand, and that was for was that that was for um, Tierra Encantada. So that no, twenty thousand was for working capital. So. Yep. So working capital is the amount that I had asked for. Uh, just kind of, you know, usually when you're starting, a, if you're starting a business and you're getting a loan, you'll typically ask for working capital, which is, I guess the easiest way to put is like slush money, like extra money so that if you don't hit projections or if you're projecting, you'll be negative for the first few months. It's the money to cover until you become profitable to pay for payroll and rent and things like that. And so how much working capital you get will depend on what your projections show and and some of those factors, you know. And so the first one was more like. I want to say like 200,000 uh, and it was a very small space. I actually expanded that center um, half the size of what I usually do now. But so was it hard? I mean, yes, it was the first one I got. And so I didn't know what that process looked like. I mean, I went to several banks, even when I went to my sec, did my second one, I got turned down by banks. Um, and so I had to go to several banks. I think sometimes people get defeated if they get a denial, don't. I mean, every bank has their own levels of how conservative they are. I mean, I personally tend to think more community type banks will take on more risk, especially for community businesses. And so uh, I think trying, you know, applying for five places, like a bunch of places, because if two will give you a loan, 
well, then what's the interest rate of both? You know, there's things that you could try to negotiate then to get yourself a better deal. Um, and one thing that I would say too that helps is if you find a bank that, uh, it depends on what loan you're doing. If you're doing a 7A versus a 504, uh, for 7A, that tends to be, so that can be pretty much anything like working capital, FF&E, so furniture, fixtures, equipment. Um, it could be building, building improvements. 504 can only be used for buying a building and construction or very large, like you know, like a huge tractor on a farm. Um, the equity requirement of 504 typically would be 10%. On 7A, it's a bit more, it'll be typically like 20%. And the terms are different. So 504 can be longer, whereas 7A will be shorter, usually tied to the duration of your lease or about seven years. Um, and so if you are going for a loan and you're going for 7A, then trying to find a bank, some banks have... Um, I don't know what the designation is, but basically they can approve SBA loans in-house. If you go to a bank that can't, then they have to send it to the SBA and it adds a lot of time on the process. If you have to send it to the SBA, it just adds time, and which for 504, you will no matter what. Uh, but that part can add time and it can be hard when you're doing your first one because you don't understand how much time it takes. So if you're negotiating a rent or a, a, you know, a lease or a purchase agreement, you don't think about that. And then you're like... <gasps> Like, oh, no, I didn't realize it was going to take three months to get this loan and now you're paying rent. And so so those are some of the things I think are hard. But that's where I think it's really important to, to develop a really good relationship with a banker and bank that you like. Um, I originally was with a much larger bank and I would call and I would go through 13 transfers and number pressing and holds to get a human with the bank I have now, which is more of a community bank, I call and they know who I am. Like they know, like the person who knows who I am, like my banker will answer. I can call him. He'll answer right away. I mean, I can email, Hey, can you set up this account? They do it. I mean, it just makes things so much easier and they know you like they've seen you, like, especially as you grow bigger and bigger and then it becomes easier, you know, easier to get loans because you've proven to them, you know, versus introducing yourself to someone whole new. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's hard because it's more complicated when you don't understand what the process is and some of the factors that impact you during that, that add stress. But once you do it, it's not, yeah, it, it isn't hard once you understand the process. I think the biggest barrier is just making sure that you can get approved. And so they look at, and SB focuses on um, approving maybe people that couldn't necessarily get conventional as easy. Um, so they'll take on a bit more risk. So they don't expect you to have a million dollars in the bank when you're getting a $200,000 loan. You know, they'll take on more risk, but understanding what they're looking for for that too is helpful so that you can prepare to, for your application. Okay, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about finances, uh, but just one last question. So was it based on your personal credit score? And do you think that the fact that you had other businesses, do you think that had an impact on you getting the loan? I think it definitely helped that I had other businesses. I, I think what helped, what they really look at, what they really looked at is if this business fails, would she be able to pay this cost back? with what she has right now. Like that was a big thing. Now that isn't the only thing that doesn't mean you have to be able to, and that's the only way they loan. That is something that they look at. Uh, they look at your projections. They, and what market research you did, you know, how light or well thought that area is of your business plan. Um, 
so I think I think it helps. But I mean, I got denied of, from multiple banks for my, for the first year. I got denied from two banks for my second year, and I had already proven I could do it. Uh, so I mean, I think. You never know if a bank's going to approve or not. And so when you're going for your first loan, that's why I think it's good to just apply to multiple places. Uh, even better if you know a business owner that's used a bank because then they can introduce you to their banker and then it can help a little bit, you know, just a little bit at least. And so I think that it's good to just spread your eggs in lots of baskets until you, until you get a yes. Wow. Thanks for all that info. Um, I do want to ask you one more question. Um, and I know this is a, con- a kind of controversial question, but like, what happens if you fail and you got all this money and you can't pay it back? What, what does that process look like? To be honest, I have no idea because I have never had that happen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It could. So it, it certainly could happen with some of the things we're doing. I mean, we're opening lots of new markets and it could not do well. I mean, I think personally, that's where it's really important for me and for people to not do something unless you know it is going to do well and you are willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Uh, I mean, for me personally, if it failed, then I would just set up a payment plan and pay it back. I, I, I'm not necessarily like a person I would say like agrees with the, uh, just be like, Oh, it failed. I'm not paying this. I mean, I I had a lot of student loan debt, over $90,000 student loan debt, and I paid it all back and I worked very hard to pay it back. And I just, I think that if I am putting my name on something and saying, you can trust me with this money, if I don't do what I said I was going to do with the money, I don't think it should be the bank's fault that I didn't do that. I would, I would pay it back. I mean, I would obviously work with them to get some sort of payment plan, even if it was over a very long time period. But for me, that's just for me what I would do. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm sure there's a lot of businesses out there that don't take the same approach. Um, and they're just more like, hey, we're going to try this out. And then if it doesn't work, we'll walk away and start something else. But that's the right thing to do for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, karma is a thing. I mean, I really think it is like in business and life. I mean, I think it, I think it is. You reap what you sell. I mean, it is. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are curious as to how they could become a franchisee. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, so we have we have a few different steps like through the press. So the inquire. So on our website, there's a form to inquire for more information. Uh, our director of franchise development will connect with them, schedule a call, uh, talk about some initial parts of the process and also kind of pre-qualify them to make sure that they would meet kind of some of the basic qualifications in terms of, you know, capital requirement, net worth, uh, the ability to actually do the, do the franchise and be able to afford it. Uh, then there's several other calls. Uh, one, they'll go over the FDD, the franchise disclosure document. Uh, those are essentially what's filed with state regulators. So it is all of the rules and the contractual agreements that go into being a franchisee, but it also has all of the costs. So what somebody could expect based on like real numbers, you cannot, it has to be everything. It's very scrutinized. So uh, for, it has financials. So a lot of franchisors choose not to include financials. Um, You don't have to. If you do, it has to be, 
real financials. Like you can't be like, oh yeah, you're going to make this much a year. It has to be your real financials. Uh, and a lot don't include them. I don't agree with that. If you're asking somebody to invest their life savings in your brand, they should have as much information as they need to make the decision and not t- showing them what your center, you know, what your, what your units are doing. I think, I don't know. I wouldn't want to invest in something that didn't do that. Um, so they'll go over that. They'll look at like, it, cause it shows, you know, what the revenue was for em- every one of our centers year by year. It goes over, you know, last year, what each one of our centers did, what they spent on, you know, employees, what they spent on all the different areas goes through all of that. Uh, so then once they go through a few calls, then they'll have a call with me, an executive call. And so I have different things that I like to ask. They'll usually have questions. Uh, and then if I think they're a good fit, we both think they're a good fit, then we'll invite them to a discovery day. A discovery day, they'll come here to our corporate office. They'll meet a bunch of our team that would be providing support for marketing, real estate, you know, construction, all of the different team members that will be part of their support team. And then they'll tour some of our centers, ask any other questions they have. And then after that, they would sign franchise agreement and pick a territory. So they'd pick where they'd like to open. Uh, with our, I guess, approval, because there's areas that we wouldn't want to open in as much because it's just not as dense population-wise. Uh, and then once they're on board, then then they go through the whole onboarding process and start looking for their start looking for their site. Well, that's something to aspire to for sure. So thank you so much for your time and being candid. And I want to wrap up by asking you, what's next for your company? Sure. Uh, Next is a lot of growth, (laughs) just a lot of growth. I mean, I think, you know, we're really, we're really fortunate. We have an amazing team of staff, both at our centers, but here at our corporate office, uh, you know, we're all rowing in the same direction. You could say we're all, you know, very excited about the plans that we've made about our goals are we're planning to open or have in development at least 30 more centers by the end of next year and so we'll be going to a lot of new markets and bringing down a lot more franchisees and we're just really excited about about the growth and all the things that we have planned to do for the next year or two well i have to say when i grow up i want to be like you (laughs) (laughs) for sure So thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing your growth. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I learned some really valuable lessons from this episode, and I think a phrase that sums it up is, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I also learned how important it is to do your own research for your business, that you need to have enough money in the bank if you want to grow quickly, and how vital strong operating procedures are. Thanks again, Christian, for speaking with us. And thank you listeners for joining us in our goal of bringing in a community of visionaries dedicated to making the world a better place. Be sure to follow us on social media at Zora Digital. Talk up. Talking up is what Z Talks is all about. Be sure to tune in next month for episode 27. Zora Digital is a digital marketing company based in Chicago. We help brands with a spirit of innovation navigate the digital landscape and create significant ROI. Thank you.